Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan. Is there a stranger, more surreal feeling than the feeling you get when you fall in love? I mean, what is love, baby, don't hurt me? Finding a useful definition is almost impossible. Maybe Tex Perkins came closest when he sang that doing the dishes is real, real love. Probably a better way of thinking about it revolves around the things you feel when you fall in love. There's a tingle. There's the sense of impending euphoria. The world seems a kind of place. You're a kind of person somehow. Jokes are funnier. Food is tastier. Your confidence reaches comical. And let's face it, insufferable heights. And if, from that initial fall, you land softly and you find yourself ensconced in a sustainable love, well, good for you. And me and my girlfriend. Hi, darling. Now, we humans don't just reserve love for fellow humans, do we? We love dogs. We love art. We love clothes. We love sport. We love rugby league. Although, it seems fewer people are saying that in 2021. So what's happening here? Don't get me wrong, I do get it. People are upset by the World Cup, the rule changes. I won't go through the laundry list for now. But I wonder if our unique COVID-related circumstances has something to do with it too. Either way, what happens if we fall out of love with a sport, with such a lifetime companion? What are we falling out of love with? Is the it's not you, it's me routine appropriate here? Or does it come from some kind of subconscious perception of betrayal somewhere deep down inside? I'm interested in this topic because for rugby league fans, well, fans of most sports really, 2020 and 2021 have been the kind of years that leave you pondering things you may not have previously pondered when it was all rush, rush and tickets and pubs. It's probably a combination of things, lockdowns for sure. But for me, it's also seeing games without crowds, the hubs, the changing schedules in Super League's case. This departure from a lifetime of rugby league routine, of certainty that rugby league has played for the fans at home and away, at a certain time of the week, leaves me asking myself more questions than I normally would. What am I watching and why? What's the real point of all this? I'm hoping and trusting such uncomfortable questions will go back to where they came from in my subconscious soon enough, if and when life gets back to normal next year, sweet baby Jesus, don't fail me now. But maybe they won't. So what do we love when we love rugby league and what is happening when it's all feeling a bit rocky? Well, joining me to discuss is the great Steve Mascord, rugby league bon vivant of the people and progressive rugby league immortal in waiting. In a game of fighters, Steve has always been a rugby league lover. His love for the game has never known geographical bounds, but recently Steve has hinted at other bounds that said love may not be able to leap. Has Steve had his Truman Show moment with rugby league or can the switch be flicked on again once this weird old year or two is behind us? Is this a definitive moment of breakup potential or just a bad phase? I'm not going to hold Steve to definitive answers if he promises the same for me. Let's make a deal. Steve Mascord, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. Jono, you put all other podcasters to shame with your amazing scripts. I feel <laughs> I feel like it's all downhill from here for the listeners. Scripts, mate. That was just ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Look, as you may have noticed, love is on my mind. So I want to start by asking if you have ever been able to pinpoint what it was that made you fall in love with rugby league all those years ago as a kid in Windang. 
Yeah, um, I'm flattered that you know what suburb of Wollongong I'm from, John. Um, I think it was just, maybe some listeners can identify with this, but as a kid I kind of didn't fit in, strangely enough, I still don't, but, you know, I was kind of maybe bullied a little bit. And my uncle, we had an uncle who had what we would call now a learning disability, my uncle Colin, he lived in the spare room at our place when I was a kid, and he used to buy rugby league week in big league, and they're always crumpled up, and most things I own, as my wife will tell you, are also mostly crumpled up. And then I realised this thing that he was obsessed with was also something that could make me kind of cooler I wouldn't say cool at school <laughs> if I took an interest in it and then there were footy cards and stuff like that and there was you know Rex Mossop and, and Barry Ross on a Sunday night with their replay I would say this would be about 1979 so I would have been 10 mm. and I, I guess it was it was a way for me to, strangely enough who else who grew up in Wollongong also says that being interested in rugby league made him fit in one PVL but yeah so I had probably in that way a similar experience to uh, Peter Volandis growing up in Wollongong and and, and rugby league was a uh, a mechanism that allowed me to fit in in the schoolyard. The difference is, I think he played to a decent level, and I played to a very—you wouldn't even call it a level—but um, I did attempt to play as well. That's really interesting. So I guess it's the interesting question about what is happening when someone falls in love with the sport. You know, rugby league in this case. You know, are the rules just unbelievably good, or is it more a matter of finding some kind of connection with your fellow man or woman? You know, relatively speaking, if it was just about the rules, hardcore rugby league fans would probably really like rugby union too. Uh, There's no sport closer. So do you think in general it's more about the on-field or is it more social factors, generally speaking? Okay, well, here's the first bit of sacrilege for your program. Rugby league is not the greatest game of all. It's just a game. And if (laughs) Coits was the number one sport in Wollongong in 1975, I would be the biggest Coits fan in the world right now. I was just predisposed to be obsessed with things in pop culture, you know, and, and take things too far. So uh, it's certainly not the rules for me at all. And in fact, you know, I've always, even through all those years of covering State of Origins and then coming on kangaroo tours and going to grand finals and being on the sideline, you know, from big matches, I always found the games are too long. I lose concentration. You know, I got a, what we used to call an, an MTV att- attention span back when there was music on MTV. So I fell in love with rugby league because of all the bright colours, not because of the rules, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, you hear a lot of people say, oh, if you just put rugby league in front of people, they'll fall in love with it. But that's a really kind of subjective <laughs> starting point, really. So, yeah, it also probably depends on the type of person you are too. There are types of people who gravitate to the beauty or the mystery of a specific skill set like golf. And then there are those who get sucked into the human drama of a sporting code, like it's a theater show with good guys and bad guys. And most of the time it's fairly predictable, but comfortable. And sometimes it just blows your mind. And then, you know, especially for team sports, there's the identity factor. We like seeing people like us do things well, and it makes us feel good. And if we do it better than people who are not quite like us, i.e. they live over there, then it makes us feel even better. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I certainly bought into, you know, when when Illawarra joined the competition in 1982, you know, my favourite colour was already red and my favourite team at the time was St George. So you'd think I'd be a massive uh, Dragons fan. So and then the sort of tribalism came in and I was, you know, I was quite happy to see them beat South for the first victory um, about a third of the way through the season in 1982 started going to away games. I mean, I could go down a heap of rabbit holes here, but, mm. but it, I went to the grand final in 1982 in my Illawarra jersey, nice. and, and people said, what team is that? <laughs> They'd played the entire year in the competition, and because only a couple of games a week were on TV, mm. they were never on TV, and you could actually follow a competition and not know the strip of one of the teams in that competition. It was such a, 
it was such a, uh, a different world. In fact, Eddie Lumsden said when he came down from Newcastle to play for St George, uh, you remember you know, the great St George team mm. of the 1960s, I went to a function where Eddie Lumsden said he didn't know St George's colours when he came down from Newcastle. Right. So we followed the Newcastle competition. I didn't know what the colours were. So anyway, that's got nothing to do with what we're discussing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it all helps us get to the, the question, though, of what's happening when someone goes cold on a favourite sport. So I want to get you to your personal experience in a sec. But first, from a general perspective, if we agree that a large part of falling in with a sport is about that feeling of belonging to a group that we identify with. Do you think it follows that when we're falling out of love with a sport, we're falling out of love with a group of people? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, this show is called Progressive Rugby League, and I currently finishing off that book, Two Tribes, mm. at 97. Mm-hmm. And one of the conclusions I reach towards the end of the book, obviously, why reach a conclusion anywhere else, <laughs> uh, is uh, as a Progressive Rugby League fan, it's not our game. We're just renting. It's fundamentally, and we'll go into this further, I'm sure, with your line of questioning, but it's fundamentally not our game. We are strangers in the game as progressive people. It wasn't built for us. It was built for people who could not afford to play rugby, had the opportunity to earn a bit of money so they could play rugby. Mm. So eventually, it's more that when that realisation becomes more stark mm. and when, when you realise that you'll always be an outsider, or at least for the term of my natural life, mm you'll always be an outsider in this community, then it's time to devote less time to that community. Mm. Let's get to your personal experience over the last couple of years and coming to this realisation. I've been enjoying very much your daily Two Tribes emails, looking back 25 years through the Rugby League Press of the Day, providing insights from back then with a dose of modern-day perspective. And recently, as you're alluding to, you're starting to hint in those emails that you've started falling out of love with Rugby League a little so I guess let's get into your experience. Why do you think you feel so disillusioned this year of all years? I mean, rugby league-related exasperation is surely not new for someone of your experience. Yeah, um, so there's there's a couple of things. I started sort of disengaging. I mean, the fact I'm coming to you from London is, I guess, the biggest testament to my mm. steady disillusionment. I, you know, when I was a kid, I guess I steadily fell in love with rugby league. I didn't just wake up one day and decide that I was um, going to read my uncle's Rugby League Weeks cover to cover and watch Rex Mossop every Sunday night. It was kind of a gradual thing where the the bright colours and the iconography engaged me steadily. And equally, my disengagement has been gradual. In in 2013, I was very disappointed that after the Ben Barber fiasco at Canterbury, and we all saw how that ended with being captured by a closed-circuit TV in the car park of uh, Breakwater Casino. But, you know... I don't think there's any doubt that Todd Greenberg knew about that behaviour pretty bluntly and starkly more than half a decade earlier. Mm. And yet he was investigated by the Integrity Unit and ended up CEO of the NRL. So that disillusioned me enormously because I felt that my role in the sport was to ask questions and hopefully get honest answers. And when it became clear to me that the sport didn't hold honest answers at a premium, that it wasn't necessarily that important for honesty to be displayed, I immediately quit about $60,000 a year worth of work. Mm. I kept writing features. But, I, you know, I was at the time I was doing The Age from Sydney where I was writing a couple of storm stories a week and covering the games. Mm. And then I was also also doing more stuff for Rugby League Week, Sydney Morning Herald. 
I was sitting on the sideline for Triple M and ABC. I, I had about ten jobs. You know what I mean? And it was pro- sometimes you might say, as a psychologist, that I was just looking for an excuse to stop having ten jobs. That could be true. I was just looking for an excuse. That's for other people to judge. But and then when I got married in 2016, my wife was quite happy. I think for me to go home for seven months a year and and do the rugby league thing because it's a very specialised job. It's all I've ever done, mm. and I'm basically unemployable anywhere else. Um, I didn't want to. I, I was ready. I was, I was done. So that was a much bigger uh, act of protest and disengagement than mm. anything I could describe to 2021. But m- my interest in rugby league has morphed from footy cards as a 10-year-old as a to basically cheering rugby league as my community and my group of people and my interest mm. against other sports. And I'm not a sports fan. I don't follow other sports. Mm. So that's my team. Yeah. Right, so with what happened with the World Cup, my team forfeited. My team forfeited a whole month of fixtures, like two months of fixtures. Mm. My team was unable, rather than argue about why my coach couldn't assemble a team, which gets me head up, and perhaps gets you and your listeners head up mm. about the politics and the you know the ARLC being in a position of power and using that power mm. to the detriment of the international game. The deeper frustration is that Rugby League as my team cannot get 17 players on the field to compete with other sports this mm. October and November. Mm. It has forfeited two months of fixtures. Mm. So I can't support, same as London Broncos, London Broncos refused to go to Toulouse this year. Mm-hmm. They refused to go because they had a full-time team. They had no excuse not to go. Mm. So they just didn't go because every other team had an excuse because they had part-time players. Mm. So... I haven't been to a London Broncos game all year. You know what I mean? And Rugby League has just done the same thing. Rugby League has just forfeited to other sports for two months. And to me, that deepens my alienation to subterranean depths. Yeah. So, you know, and then and then I would go on to my earlier answer about as progressives, we're just renting in Rugby League. We're guests. It'll never be our game, you know, because... Oh, this is becoming a bit of a diatribe or a polemic or whatever, mm. but rugby league was started in England for people who could not afford to play rugby mm-hmm. and in Australia for people who also wanted to earn money for playing rugby, okay? Yep. And it is still selling to the great-great-grandkids of those people who were too poor to play rugby unless they got paid. Mm. Now, that was a... It was a social movement. It was a laudable social movement. I'm not deriding what happened back then. But what you have now, four generations later, is it is still rugby for the poor and it can't progress because the AB demographics are already occupied in the marketplace by rugby union. It has a a cement ceiling as far as moving up and embracing some of those blue-chip sponsors and some of the more wealthy... I know there are wealthy people supporting clubs. People go, Nick Politis, Russell Crowe. I know all that, okay. But it actually is a study over the course of many generations how few people, how few people actually manage to improve their circumstances from their parents, their grandparents. So you've got your Ian Lennigans, right? And you've got your Paul Caddicks and you've got your Nick Politis and these sort of people. There's not many of them, are there? Really, when you consider it, where we started in 1895 and 1908 and then how many wealthy people there are now who actually are willing to support the game, they all want to support their club. They don't support the game. Mm. So my frustration 
frustration, Jono, is that we are five generations in to um, the rugby league community and it is still... I don't have a problem with the fact that it's still people of limited means because I have limited means. I would be sleeping under a bridge if it wasn't for my wife right now. I'd be coming to you from under a bridge, okay? So, uh, but... My problem is that the, the lack of ambition to progress and the obstacle to progress, and the obstacle is called rugby union. It's in our space. Mm. So I feel that things are hopeless, completely hopeless, with the caveat that if the game somehow manages to ingratiate itself in communities where they don't have that class history, they don't identify rugby league as a working-class sport, where rugby union is not necessarily seen as an upper-class sport or a mm. private school sport, and the two sports are taken on their merits, which is what I think happened in Canada with the Wolfpack, yeah. what I think would have happened for two months here with the sport on the BBC in prime time with a million viewers. Mm. That is the only hope for the sport. Otherwise, the sport will always be selling bunnings and mixed drinks and mushy peas to people who live week to week. And that's the end of my speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I want to get to the Rugby League World Cup in a sec. I guess one observation I would make is, uh, told this story a few times on this show, but the reason we called this show Progressive Rugby League, it, it was a, a kind of a, a joke term that we came up with while watching the footy one Friday night uh, at the pub. And I, there was some dodgy nightclub incidents at the time. And, and so, I don't know, the term Progressive Rugby League came up and everyone kind of laughed. That's Progressive Rugby League. We thought about it some more, though. And then we, we kind of realized, actually, when you think about it, actually, Rugby League is an incredibly progressive sport and has been over its history. It started as a, a workers' rights movement, as you mentioned. Arthur Beetson, the first Indigenous captain of any sport, was, was a Rugby League player. Clive Sullivan, our first black captain of a Great Britain team, was a Rugby League player. Ian Roberts, you know, the, the list goes on and on and all that sort of thing. So it's interesting what you, you say there where you say it's not for progressives whereas i kind of i get what you mean but i guess my reflection is that we actually started this podcast because we made the realization that hey you know what uh, rugby league actually is a, a really progressive sport what, what are your thoughts on that yeah i think i think rugby league is altruistic internally and just not externally you know mm. rugby league is very altruistic internally and we say you know the rugby league family is a is an expression that annoys me because mm. i think it covers up for a modicum of not a modicum a, a lot <laughs> I'll stop trying to use long words. A lot of sins, you know, that mm. we're the rugby league family, we should give people for everything. But certainly I would never deride, you know, what Kevin Sinfield has done for Rob Burrow and the love for Rob Burrow. And, you know, I'm not alienated by, like, if I had a room, if everyone was in this small apartment now and they would fit, who would go to the London Broncos or the London Scholars. <laughs> you know, I love them all. Now, I never look down, I can't afford to look down my nose at anybody, right? I'm just a kid from Wollongong, but... I like the community and I like going to games. I like the socialising. I like the people within the sport. Mm. But I'm talking about where the sport has parked itself. It is a billboard. The business model is a billboard pointed at the poor. And I say, you know, people get upset when I say this, right? Mm. They get upset because they think I'm saying that they're poor or they're not worthy. I'm poor. I'm not worthy. But I can still see I can still see that objectively that the people who advertise, we don't have a Mercedes Cup. We don't have a Rolex Shield. Qantas yeah. sponsor the Wallabies, not Kangaroos. You know what I mean? So, and, and rugby league is locked into that business model and its progress, any possible upward progress, even if it wanted to, is blocked by the fact that rugby union's already there. So rugby league is definitely 
progressive internally in that. I mean, look at Tonga. We, I mean, I was talking to uh, Patrick Skeen the other day mm. who wrote the Olsen Philip Arna book, and he said, you know, you're going to like this book because something you said is, is in the book and it's quite prominent. The mm. rugby league is the Robin Hood of sports. It takes from the rich and gives the poor. Players move from Queensland to Sydney for money, mm. so we send them back to play for Queensland and create this great thing. Um, people's parents and grandparents move from Nakua Lofa to Auckland or Penrith for money, we send their grandkids back to play for Tonga. That That is in keeping with the spirit of that started the sport. Mm. But I said to Patrick Skeen, how did Robin Hood's life end? I don't know how it ended. I, I, did he die of old age? I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Robin Hood didn't have a great life. He had a very violent life. You know what I mean? And, and being the Robin Hood in, in any situation is an enormous sacrifice. And the biggest sacrifice you make is to yourself and your own life and mm. your own prosperity. You know what I mean? I, I don't think there's a happy ending to being Robin Hood. I'm yeah. glad someone's doing it, but I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a happy, uh, yeah. happy existence. I feel like you're, you're, you're making an observation rather than making a judgment, which is fair enough. I, I would say yeah. on the point of not being able to attract sponsors and, and be, I suppose what you're saying is upwardly mobile from a socioeconomic perspective is, yeah, we don't have like the Mercedes Cups and not sponsored by Qantas. To that, I would say, you know, so what really? Like, we, I don't think rugby league needs that. There are other examples of sports that thrive with that kind of working class uh, demeanor. I don't know, NASCAR, darts, boxing, I guess. You know, yeah. there are plenty of working class people uh, who have money, I guess. Like, it, class is now like more about identity rather than than means so I, I see what you mean there i guess i don't see it as the cement ceiling as you do but understanding that when i say darts and and nascar there's not a darts union or a nascar union that's taking the top 20 percent of of all the the kind of sponsors and all that sort of thing so i definitely see where you're coming from john this is more about what i you know sitting here at age 52 having been where I was and worked, what yeah. I did. And this is just my attitude now. You know, I'm not telling anyone else. I'm not trying to sell this worldview. I'm yeah. just trying to explain, as you said, the, the way I feel. I just, I need rugby league to be able to compete with other sports and to be able to put on internationals when other sports put on internationals. Yeah. And if rugby league can't compete with other sports on a level playing field because of its internal politics, then it, it just loses a bit more of me, as it yeah. did in 2013. Totally understand. Now, let's get to the Rugby League World Cup. So, you know, everyone wishes the Rugby League World Cup was going ahead this year. But why do you think the decision of postponement provokes such strong emotion from we in the International Rugby League community? Yes, sure, the NRL screwed the World Cup over for this year. But if you take the personalities out, is it such an outrageous decision to delay it a year considering we're in a unique moment in history that's been a big hassle for everyone and continues to be a massive hassle for heaps of people? Of course, when I say personalities, I'm really talking about Peter Vlandes and Gus Gould, I guess. They're, they are lightning rods and they were talking lots of nonsense on this issue. So yeah, the combination of lightning rod personalities and social media, I mean, Gus Gould was fighting a one-man Twitter war. So I guess I wonder what the reaction would have been if it was just an Andrew Abdo statement. What are your thoughts on that? Now that we have a bit of distance from the drama of the postponement, is the decision to delay a year still as outrageous for you? Yeah, yeah, I think it is because, I mean, I was talking to someone on the call before this and they were like, I'm not sold on the fact it's even going to happen uh, next year because of the availability of venues and all that sort of stuff. But I see that rugby league is now at an international level has grown to the point it's almost good in a way if you want to stick around for the battle. 
if you want to be there in the front row seat with a boxing match, uh, it's, it's actually quite heartening. The international game is now a threat. The International Federation is now actually on the radar of the NRL. It's actually mm. an annoyance to them. And, and, and Phil Gould is talking about disbanding it. And I, I honestly, you know, I do think that sending the IRL broke and taking it over has been mentioned in the halls of power. Mm. And so that's why I think it is, uh, on a deeper level, annoying, more than annoying, infuriating mm. to the extent that I, it's painful to talk about for people like me mm. because you have rugby league's myopia writ large. You know, at least in 1995, the progressives were generally on the Super League side because someone came in and said, all your dreams were World Club Challenge involving every team <laughs> State of Origin involving New Zealand, it's grand final in Brisbane. All your dreams will come true. Get on board Rupert's train. You know what I mean? And so you had these two sides, and now we almost have the, the kind of um, the Empire Strikes Back 25 years later, where the ultra, ultra conservatives of, of inner Sydney have had their biggest ever victory by having a World Cup called off. So, you know, Progressive's got a bad name out of the Super League War. You know, they went to buying back the farm, and, and we lost Adelaide and Perth and all, all those teams, you know, with the end of uh, Super League. And 25 years later, talk about things happening in cycles. This is the direct opposite of that. And so, that's why it frustrates people because it is like the international game is getting a bit too big for its boots. It's, it's the myopia of the sport and the kind of small-mindedness, perhaps the biggest ever illustration of it in the entire history of the sport. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because the reason I asked the question was I was reflecting on my experience through the process of the Rugby League World Cup being postponed. So I was consuming it through social media, really, and my international rugby league bubble i guess which is what i have on on the progressive rugby league twitter account and i I was growing more and more frustrated where you could see the writing on the wall and you knew what was going to happen and and when it finally was postponed i kind of you know blew up to anyone who'd listen and i remember having a discussion with a, a friend on the phone soon after who's actually not on twitter but loves rugby league and i was saying oh you know what happened with the rugby league world cup can you believe the selfishness and all that sort of stuff and he's like isn't it going to be on next year and i'm like well, yeah, but that's not the point. And I was trying to explain my point of view. And then he's like, but it, won't it be full strength next year? I'm like, well, that's the idea. But And I was trying to sort of get into the sort of nuance of why it's an injustice. But then... If you, if you live in this country, mate, the big thing is FIFA World Cup's on next year. Yeah, and everything will be lost in the, in the rush. You know, FIFA World Cup is on. Like, rugby league is invisible in England. Yeah. Completely invisible. There is not a single Super League player who could walk around London for two hours and be pretty confident of being recognised. No one, okay? And so suddenly you've got an opportunity of seven consecutive Saturdays on uh, BBC with a, a million-plus viewers. Mm. Uh, and next year that won't be the case, right? The, the schedules will be full of other sports and then everyone will be talking about FIFA World Cup. So it's not on next year in a way that's anywhere near as, as meaningful. Okay. And if the NRL do want to send the IRL broke and then take it over, then I don't think they'll sign the participation agreement anytime soon either. You know, and so it really is a it's an inflection point along the way to you know at first we had players stood down for Origin, we had no stand down. Mm. Then we had players stood down for Origin only if it's if it's a cider. When Origin started, it was only Origin if it was a dead rubber. It was residents, blah, blah, blah. And now we have players stood down for Origin all the time and they miss club games. And everything in rugby league kind of works like that. The arc, I think it does turn in the right, over the course of time, it does bend in the right direction. Mm. But I'm just sick of the journey. 
yeah. sick of the journey. I'm, I'm sick of these things happening. I'm, I don't have the patience for it. And and so, you know, that's what I'm saying. If the NRL do take over International Rugby League, I don't have confidence in them to make the right decisions. Mm. And maybe by 2070, it'll be a great setup, okay? <laughs> it'll be a wonderful setup by 2070 where there's a great schedule of matches, all players are released, all that sort of stuff. But I haven't, like, I just, the journey is too painful, mm. You know, it's too painful to ride the ups and downs on the way to a better, you know, rugby league world. It's just too much. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, the point I was trying to make was the reaction to the news was kind of dependent on how you consumed the news. Uh, and so obviously you're, you're kind of ensconced in it and yeah. had the, the total frustration and I was kind of similar. And then I was talking to a friend who loves his rugby league, loves his international rugby league, and he was just like, yeah, but... Anyway, I was just teasing out how much yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. social media and all that played a role in all that. I was more talking to him than you. Yeah, okay, no worries. I'll pass it John, on. John, I was more addressing him than you. So if he's listening... He'll be listening. <laughs> He'll be listening. Look, Steve, over the last few years, you've tried your hand at making a business or, or getting something going out of your love of rugby league through a, a series of forays into different aspects of the rugby league ecosystem, you know, merchandising, broadcast rights, rugby league nines, on top of all your books and articles and columns and podcasts. What do you say for the idea of mixing business with pleasure? For those of us out there who would love one day to, you know, make a crust out of things you love, is there a limit before the business ruins the pleasure or does it enhance it? There's a great answer to that and that is now that it's not a pleasure, I can focus on the business. Okay, right. <laughs> um, I don't know what the answer to that is. I've never done a day's work in my life, you know, because everything I've done I would have done for free. What happens when you the wrong side of 50 and you move to the other side of the world is you are doing it for free. Hmm. So it's hard for me to – I've never actually done what anyone would call business. You know, I, I, I would have gone into the Sydney Morning Herald and – rang up and, and checked on the crusher's injuries for free. I was generally interested in Kuntschakovsky's hamstring, you know. <laughs> so um, it's hard for me to answer that, although it is interesting to try to move into different areas of the same industry. So what I have learned in journalism is that everyone's on their best behaviour in front of you. People have to be really upset with you to give you a serve because they know that whatever they say to you, whatever they tell you will end up in the paper. And when you suddenly are not a journalist anymore, people are far less reticent kind of gutting you, you know, doing the wrong thing by you openly. I also made a mistake when I got here, which was just, I guess, my second adolescence, post 50, mm. of just renouncing journalism and saying I was no longer a journalist and, and journalism has been good to me and it kind of has been my sort of moral compass mm. since I left high school and it wasn't a good idea to abandon it or denounce it and I now realise that journalism is still the only way I can consistently make any money and, and with I had a thing recently where a sportswear manufacturer you know took four months to deliver stuff they were late I had to refund people money and I just put a post on my WF merchandise saying, you know, this stuff is late and hasn't always come. You know, we're processing refunds. And this sportswear manufacturer tried to get me to take the post down while admitting in a private message they'd stuffed up. They didn't want me to tell the world they'd stuffed up. Mm. And I just went, no, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave the post up there and I'm never going to deal with you again. Um, and, and that kind of pig-headedness that comes from journalism, that's where I sit. That's kind of, <laughs> I'm not really one for doing deals behind closed yeah. doors or, or agreeing not to bag someone or agreeing to cover up something that actually happened. I'd rather lose money and 
stuff any other business interest I have and stick to that central way of operating and dealing with people that I've had for 25 years. Yeah. So um, that's why we love you. <laughs> All right. Now, but, but as far as, far as the, the, the various interests, you know, I don't, if you're interested or if anyone's interested, I don't know, but definitely. Um, we, you know, I thought it was a good idea to try to show the, the non TV games of Super League into Australia. And I dead set the stood on the gantry at Cass and actually had a, had a bit of a cry when we first did it to, mm. to have an idea from a distance. And then to be standing next to the cameraman, it was very emotional, you know. I'm not used to making things happen in the three-dimensional world. Mm. I'm used to just ringing people up and getting a quote and writing a story, you know. Yeah. But, of course, COVID happened and, and that whole thing just fell in a heap. And there are overheads to doing that and there was no subscription money coming in. So yeah. that died. Um, the, the merch thing I did with Phil Brown and now I'm doing it on my own. And I know that I can just build that even if it takes 20 years. I'm still here. I know that I can just get a bit more stock in when I can afford it and build it and build it, and that's what I'm, I'm going to do. Mm. The nines thing, just I was on a call with the other three guys involved in that group, and we're proceeding with that. Unlike the streaming, it has no overheads. It's just people's time. Yeah. And so we're proceeding with the nines thing, and we're hopefully helping some of the developing countries with their warm-up games for the World Cup. We had a plan to have – we had at one point – 10 teams playing at Featherston mm. uh, the week before the World Cup in a magic weekend. By the way, that doesn't influence my disappointment at the World Cup being postponed. No, no. If you choose to think that it's my hip pocket speaking, then you, you can think that. Uh, but yeah, so that's where I'm at with those things. Yeah, no, fair enough. Now, Steve, getting back onto falling in and out of love with rugby league, you mentioned a series of very valid reasons that explain your current feelings about the game. I guess I'll ask a bit of advice from you. I mean, from my perspective over the past couple of years, a, a kind of a slight malaise has appeared in my relationship with rugby league, and I'm wondering how much COVID might have to do with it. I could point to rule changes, perhaps. Uh, I've mentioned that I think they've been a bit, bit of a net loss for the game. I could point to the World Cup postponement, obviously pretty depressing episode, as we've discussed. But then again, I'm sure I could point to certain things that have disappointed me in every year. I wonder, like I said in the intro, if COVID and the empty stadiums and the, the hubs and the, the changing schedules in Super League's case has played into the way I've been feeling because it doesn't quite feel the same. I'm hoping it, it is COVID related because that would mean it's temporary. But I guess more broadly, Steve, am I just having a whinge? Like, how do we distinguish between having a whinge that reflects other stresses in our lives and uh, no, this is a serious existential contemplation of the role the game has in, in my particular life? Can you help me out there? I know that if I go to a, a gig, if I go to a rock concert, and there hasn't been many of them lately either, mm. that um, what I was doing immediately before impacts enormously on whether how much I enjoy it. So, you know, if I had to go straight from work to a show, which I've had to do a couple of times, people afterwards would tell me it was an amazing show, and I'm going, oh, I thought it was a bit sterile, you know what I mean, because I've just gone straight from work. Yeah. And if I've had a couple of drinks beforehand, and maybe I'm, I'm staying in a motel, and I've got the night, <laughs> and I'm going to buy a T-shirt, then I, I can enjoy a bad gig and think it was the best thing ever. So, so look, do you exist? Do I exist? Is everything just, are we all just in the matrix? You know what I mean? All that really matters, all that really matters, aside from whether you hurt someone else, because you have to assume you do exist and so do they, really, mm. but just to be safe. Um, everything else is just down to your enjoyment and what, how you choose to you know, mm. delegate your time. So it doesn't matter if, you, if rugby league gives you no more enjoyment. There's no other force that should make you stick around there isn't anything you're just watching it for enjoyment so with my first year over here i watched fewer than 10 nrl games i watched more in 2020 because it was the only thing on 
Mm. And so I watched a lot of NRL, and I, I always get excited at the start of the season, or either here, doesn't matter which comp. I get excited at the start of the season. I'm someone who always remembers trial matches. I can remember the scores in trial matches, and I can't remember scores in semifinals <laughs> because, because, you know, you just got that fatigue. I get very excited about trial matches <laughs> every year. So my answer is if you walk away, rugby league won't miss you. Nothing happens. I mean, I've been talking about doing a book. Well, I started work with Steve Hughes, the stand-up comic. His most popular video on YouTube is, um, so you're offended. Guess what? Nothing happens, <laughs> right? So, so you're disillusioned with rugby league? So what? Nothing happens. I can tell you for certain that, that it's still there. It still carries on if you decide you don't care anymore. I guess and so. Feel free if you decide you don't care anymore. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm curious about how I will feel when things are back to normal and what role this strange time. We're in lockdown in Sydney. We've been in lockdown for two months now. So I'm wondering how much that is playing into this general malaise and whether if and when things get back to normal in 2022, I'll look back in this moment and go, Phew, that was a bit of a, a phase. But yes, I mean, and, and on your point about nothing changes well it does a bit i mean if i walk away from rugby league which i I won't and i I don't think i would there's some tenuous casual friendships that hang by the rugby league thread so i'd probably lose touch with a a bunch of friends as well and you know there's that element too so it's not just a vanish uh, without a trace kind of thing yeah it it is hard to completely disentangle yourself you know when i would say 80 percent of my friends i i got through rugby league but yeah, a lot of them, like I'm interviewing people for the book. I talked to Ludovico for the book mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you know, he, he said he doesn't watch much footy anymore. I mean, when I launched my book, uh, the first book, Touchstones, I launched it, it was a great day, I launched it at a Dragons game against Manly mm. with the Steelers' old boys. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better day. A lot of the Steelers' old boys said, oh, oh this is the first game I've watched in, in, in a couple of years. You know, they don't watch anymore. They still keep in touch with their mates. So, That's you true. know, it's a, it does take a bit of effort to, to actually ring Foxtel and go, I'm disconnecting. And when your friend goes, what about Manly? You go, what about Manly? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Nice beach. You know what I mean? Like, so, <laughs> you know. Well, how about, can, yeah. can I throw but this question at you? It can be done. Can I throw this question at you? Uh, when you sort of came to the realisation that you were going a bit cold on rugby league back in 2013 and then again a bit further this year, how how does that feel? Do, do you mourn that a bit or is it just like, eh, whatever? Um, no, because I get excited about the time I can spend on other things. Okay. So, so, you know, I've always, I mean, I've always had this sort of dual interest. I've always been a bit of a rock fan. Some people would say a hair metal fan. I, I don't, I'm partial to hair metal. I wouldn't sum up all the music I like as hair metal. But, yeah. and so... You know, I'm doing an interview tonight with a guy in Night Ranger. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've decided, I've consciously decided, and you do unconsciously decide things, because <laughs> sometimes people throw that word into a sentence unnecessarily, but that, that I'm going to watch one rugby league game a week because it's work. I mean, I've mm. got Patreon, I've, I've got a book. I do want to continue to, to produce rugby league content. You know, I'm trying to get to my thousand followers on YouTube like every other, you know, would-be YouTuber. So... <laughs> One game a week uh, to keep in touch with what's happening in rugby league. But I get excited about the part of my life, you know, probably when I was about 19, I had a fork in the road. I could have gone on for, uh, as the first editor of Hot Metal, mm. you know, when it started. And, and I own the trademark now. And I chose, no, I'm going to stay at AAP because I like going to football and it's more reliable work than music. Yeah. And so I kind of look back to that fork in the road and, and I go, and I get excited at the fact that I could divert back from the M25 to the M1 yeah. and uh, yeah, cross country and, and, and take up that journey that I sort of, I, I chose not to take up much younger. Do you think, Steve, that if you took the the other road in that fork, the roles yeah. would be reversed and you, you would 
at this point of your life, you would, you know, have gotten fed up with rock and roll and then and be like, all right, finally, rugby league. I can devote some more time to rugby league. I'm wondering, less is more. Is that is that a relevant phrase here? Is too much yeah, of a good I mean, thing? I mean, everything's, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I said to I was in a pub in Leicester about two weeks ago and, and we met some guy at random at the bar. And, I mean, we've been through what you're going through now mm. um, as far as lockdown. I found lockdown made me watch more rugby league, right, because I was inside. Yeah. I could kind of obsess about things and tweeting and stuff. Mm. But we ran into this guy and he was a road manager and he was, I knew the bands he'd been a road manager for. And he said, oh, he goes, yeah, uh, I told them if you come back to England twice – you're going to make on the whole tour. You're going to make. I did add it up. You're going to make four pounds, and that's and that's with me being road manager for free. And I turned to my wife. I said, "I have picked the two worst industries in the entire world to be to be interested in and to take an interest in." My, you know, my wife finds people who have like um, got missing inheritances and takes a commission off them when she reunites them with their money. That is a job. That is a serious career. You know, my interests are just proof. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Now, Steve, um, let's talk about your book. The last time we had you on the show, I think it was the start of 2020, and you'd commenced your foray into the 1997 Rugby League season in Australia. Uh, Now we know that foray has resulted in a a two-year Rugby League installation, which will culminate in a book called Two Tribes. Uh, What's the latest, and when's it coming out? Yeah, after this, I'm going to try Paul Harrigan's number again. He would be interviewee number 99 of 100. Nice. But the, the text is pretty much complete. There's some things that need to be legal, I think. I've also, last night, was playing with the ISBN number, trying to upload the book at Ingram Spark, which is how I'm going to publish it mm-hmm. in the first instance. So it is very much in the, in the final stages. Paul Harrigan, I, I was talking to Brett Keeble, who covered the 97th season, the Newcastle Herald. We kind of thought, and even though he's a bit biased because he's Paul Harrigan's biographer, but... Um, we thought that if there was going to be a central character, you could, you know, movies have to have a central character take you through the year. Mm-hmm. Um, then Paul Harrigan would be it, you of know, course, and, yeah. um, because if we're starting on October four, you know, the battle for Newcastle is. Uh, there's the Mariners. There's the um, steelworks closing. Mm. You know, you would either open the movie with someone announcing the retrenchments at the steelworks, or you would open the movie with a rock sailing through the window of the Mariners' office <laughs> yeah. at Birmingham Gardens. And then I guess you'd follow Chief right through to lifting the trophy. So, yeah, it's been good. Like any anyone who works from home on multiple projects at once, I've had moments of blazing productivity and moments of sort of slothful laziness. But yeah. we're getting there and, you know, we've got, I think we've got 76 people who subscribed, uh, pre-ordered and are getting the daily things at, um, at twotribes.substack.com. They'll all have their names in the book. Fabulous. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing John O. P. Duncan in that book. Now, Steve, how has <laughs> this process affected your relationship with nostalgia? For most people, nostalgia is warmth and a bit of fun. And it is that way because you're not focusing on the details. You tend to forget the tedium and the frustration. After this experience, are you still able to have positive rugby league related nostalgia? Uh, yeah, 100%. But, you know, for me, you know, and again, I mean, a lot of people thought, my first book was about me. There's no, it, it was indulgent. It was intended to be. Mm. You know, I've got to make no, no apologies for that. I read stuff like Nick Hornby and Chuck Hosterman, and I, and I went, I want to write a book like that. You mm. know, so that's what I did. This one is a piece of journalism. It's not about me at all. But the process has been personal because I've spoken to 98 people who, most of whom I, I spoke to Rodney Overby the other day, the ground announcer at Penrith in 97. Mm. Uh, I never met him back in the day. He was he was great. I said, did you come back in uh, 98? I can't remember. He said, no dough, no oh. 
But uh, <laughs> most of the people I've interviewed were people I know, like you know, I'm ringing people like Nathan Gibbs and Mark mm. Sargent and Neil Whitaker, people, you know, I think they're at the point now where they're a bit wistful about the people they knew back then as well. Mm. And so I've kind of been a bit emotional on the phone sometimes talking mm. to people I haven't spoken. And, you know, Bob Fulton, Bob Fulton, who I never had much of a relationship with, mm. he got back to me and made me send him the quotes I was going to use. And there was no small talk and uh, we know why. We mm. know why now. Yeah, right. You know, he um, wanted to see the quotes, you know. Um, mm. So it's definitely made me very nostalgic and I would actually go as far as to say I'm quarantining my memories of the sport from how I feel about it right now. Mm. Uh, they're two completely, they evoke two completely different emotions like a lot of old blokes. Mm. And I'm just another old bloke now and I understand old blokes now like Harry Edgar who put out a magazine that is just devoted to the 70s and the 80s and, and doesn't write a word about this century. Yeah. Um, I, I, that always seemed curious to me but I understand it now, yeah. Yeah, no, oh, fair enough. That's uh, it's very interesting. Well, Steve, we are out of time. Uh, thanks for a very interesting chat. And may I say good luck with the launch of the book, Two Tribes, and maybe speaking from a selfish viewpoint because it might mean more books down the track. I hope you rekindle some rugby league love real soon. Steve Mascord, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Is that a pun, rekindle? Was that a- <laughs> No, I didn't even, didn't even think of it. <laughs> rekindle. No, no worries, no worries. I think we should end on the joke. Progressive Rugby League. Thanks, Steve. What a guy. All right, let's call it. Until we next meet somewhere in a Rugby League relationship counselling session. Rugby League. Hold me. And see ya.